I was going to um, make you all move around, but I've decided to let you be <laughs> um, because there are some more people coming in. So we're just going to set up some more chairs in the back. So don't mind uh, if anyone wants to help get in the back. Thank you. Decisions, decisions, decisions. We make decisions all day long, all day long, right? From the moment the alarm rings or something wakes you up and you have to make that decision. Do I snooze? Do I turn over or do I wake up now, right? That's the first decision you have to make. And of course, what to wear, which route to take to work, what you're going to do on your phone while you're commuting, which project to work on first, who to have lunch with, what you're going to do when you get home, and of course, what to eat for dinner, and so on and so forth, right? All these decisions that we make each and every day. How do we make these decisions? What about the big decisions about career choices, career changes, relationships, religious beliefs? What influences you to make your choice? And how do we make better choices? In a study that looked at the science of decision-making, they discovered a few interesting things. First, they discovered what's called decision fatigue, which is that kind of like your physical muscles, by the time you've made a thousand decisions in a day, and believe you me, you do subconsciously make over a thousand decisions a day, that your mind is tired of making these decisions. And so they have found that by the end of the day, or whatever point you've reached your, you know, uh, however many decisions you've made, that you are less likely to want to make a decision. You are suffering decision fatigue. And so you either choose not to choose or you choose the safe default option. A 2010 study by Shai Danzinzer of 1,112 parole board hearings in Israel over a 10-month period found that parole judges were more likely to award parole early in the morning and immediately after taking a break. And so as their string of cases grew longer and longer leading up to the break, the chances of the prisoner being awarded parole diminished substantially. So if you're a prisoner, you better be hoping that you get early morning or right after the break. <laughs> and, they, and this wasn't um, just you know one judge. They found this with uh, many judges, one thousand over a thousand parole board hearings over 10 months, right? Decision fatigue that can literally impact your life. They've also discovered that your serotonin levels determine your decision-making skills. The higher the serotonin level, the more likely you are to tackle a difficult decision and to want to make a decision that has high risk. By the afternoon, your serotonin has declined, and so then again, you don't want to make choices. You're less likely to make a decision. Dr. Amantha, Amantha Ember, an organizational psychologist, recommends scheduling major decisions before 11 a.m. That you make major decisions before 11 a.m. You can also increase your serotonin levels with sunshine, exercise, and good nutrition. Also, if you have unmet needs, then you want to have bigger rewards when you're making choices. So in other words, if you're hungry and you go grocery shopping, you're likely to, you're going to make um, choices that will impact how much you buy because you're hungry. You have this unmet need that drives you to buy a lot more than you actually were planning to purchase, right? Also, if you're thirsty, they have found that you're more likely to uh, make choices where you want bigger rewards. So you'll gamble higher when you're actually thirsty. Did you know that at, at a 
if you if you um, study the people who gamble, that if they have deprived someone of, of drinking um, and they're thirsty, that they're more likely to gamble with higher risk. Also, fresh air. They have studied um, work conditions, and they have found that even the slightest lowering, right? So in other words, if you, if you increase carbon dioxide levels in workspaces, that the cognitive abilities decreased. So it's, it's such an irony that we have workspaces where all the windows are closed, right? when actually you need fresh air and oxygen to increase your cognitive abilities, better air circulation. Also, if you, have a, if you know more than one language, if you have a foreign language um, that you can access, they have found that if you reframe your decision in a foreign language, that you're actually able to make a more rational choice because in your native primary language, there's a lot of emotions wrapped up in that just by nature of the fact that you know, we are emotional beings. But they have found that when you reframe the decision in a foreign language, the emotional aspects are removed to a certain point, and that you can actually make a more rational decision. So if you do know a foreign language, next time you have to make a major decision, um, first thing in the morning with plenty of fresh air, but after you've eaten your breakfast and you are you know, satisfied, then you can make that, that decision in that second language. But even with all that, how can you base your decisions on good factors? How will you know that you're making good decisions? This is Dan Early, and he um, is a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University. And he's a founding member of, get this, the Center for Advanced Hindsight. Okay. <laughs> there is such a center. He founded it. And uh, he has multiple TED Talks. And one of the TED Talks is called, Are We in Control of Our, of our Own Decisions? And he makes the point that we are bombarded with choices all day, every day, our whole lives. And these choices sometimes are complex and difficult. And so he talks about how a lot of times we make decisions, not because they're the best decisions, but because we're just you know, bombarded, so we kind of go with the flow or we choose choices that actually aren't in line with what we really want. For example, The Economist uh, actually advertised three choices. You could have an online subscription for $59, a print subscription for $125, or you could get both for $125. Now, this was a real ad, but he took this and he then made it into an experiment with people. What would you choose? One, two, or three? Let me see a show of hands. Who would choose one? Who would choose two? Who would choose three? Okay. Well, in the experiment that he did, most people chose three because it sounds like such a great deal, right? 125 for the print, or you can get both for 125 and many people will just go with the thing that sounds like the best deal, right? 125. But of course, when he removed the print subscription option, which is option number two, which in fact is actually useless um, because you can either have online or print and online, right? Um, he found that people actually chose online only. Online only. Because in essence, what people really wanted was just the online. But the reason why they went with the combo deal in the first choice is because it just sounded like a good deal. But they didn't really want the print subscription. Okay. In another research by Johnson and Goldstein on decision-making, 
They looked at which country had the highest percentage of people who indicated that they would be interested in donating their organs. Okay, um, and they discovered something very interesting. And you, you might you can see here which countries um, have the lowest percentage of people willing to donate their organs, and which countries have the highest percentage. You'll notice a very, very, very big difference. And they looked at well, you know, is it because of religious beliefs or cultural norms or what? And they, they, they examined, and what it came down to was this. The countries that had the lowest number of uh, percentage of people who were willing to donate their organs after you know, death, at the DMV, the form had uh, a checkbox that said, check the box if you want to participate in the organ donor program. And what happened? Most people didn't check. The countries that had a lot those DMVs had a different question. Um, it said, check the box if you don't want to participate in the organ donor program. So what happened? Most people don't check, which means they're automatically enrolled. Okay? So someone, someone at the DMV who made that decision to, to put that checkbox as, uh, you either check if you want to opt in or check if you want to opt out. Okay? That determined the percentage, the overwhelming percentage, right? Almost 100% in a lot of these countries versus very, very low in the other countries. You see how our decisions a lot of times are not thoughtful, are not because that's really what we want, but it's because of circumstances. It's because of all these factors that are actually outside of our control and that um, we don't even notice sometimes. Dan Arley goes on to say, the general idea here, by the way, is that we actually don't know our preferences that well. And because we don't know our preferences that well, we're susceptible to all of these influences from the external forces, the defaults, the particular options that are presented to us, and so on. And he makes this excellent point that when it comes to our physical, when it comes to the physical world, right, gravity, um, you know, physical conditions of, of the bridges, we understand our limitations, and so we plan and, and we know here, here's what we can't control or here's our limitations. How can we work around it? But he goes on to say, but for some reason, when it comes to the mental world, when we design things like healthcare, retirement, and stock markets, we somehow forget the idea that we are limited. I think that if we understood our cognitive limitations in the same way we understand our physical limitations, even though they don't stare us in the face the same way, we could design a better world. In other words, he's saying, hey, recognize that we are limited in our decision-making skills. Admit and accept that our understanding, as enlightened as they may be by education and information and intellect, is still limited. So the case I want to present to you today is that because our understanding is limited, because our mental cap capacities are influenced by external factors, that we need to seek God's guidance when making decisions, not relying on our own understanding, but asking God for his wisdom, because he alone can see the past, the present, and the future. And his word is the compass that will always point north, despite our minds and our hearts and the world and everything changing it all over the place. You know, my sister, some of you have met her, is my sister, is one of the smartest people I know. Growing up, she got 100% on every test she ever took. 
She graduated valedictorian of her high school, went to Princeton University, where she not only was pre-med, but also she was in the special Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs while minoring in Spanish. Went on to Johns Hopkins Medical School, where she did her fellowship in preventative uh, disease and health, got her master's in public health, and is now the director of the La Malinda University's Health Institute for Health Policy and Leadership. She's also the associate professor of pediatrics and preventive medicine. She is an incredible human being. But you know what her rule of thumb has been since she was a child? Her favorite Bible verse that she had memorized since she was two. And yes, she was, she was reading at the age of two. Her whole life's mantra has been this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Then you will have healing for your body and strength for your bones. You see, she understood her whole life, and, and the Bible presents to us that our own understanding is limited, so trust in the Lord. Seek his will, and he will show us the path to take. Where does he show us this path? Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. You have been taught by holy scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God, God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. You see, the Bible is there to teach us to show us, to guide us when we are making those crucial decisions in our lives. From the beginning with Adam and Eve, looking at the choices they made, to the very last pages of the book of Revelation where it talks about the choices the, the people in the last days will make, we can learn from these stories. We can learn from these principles. For example, last week we uh, celebrated the death and resurrection of Jesus. And one of the key players was a man named Herod. Herod Antipas uh, was the ruler of Galilee in the first century during, during the time of Jesus. And he divorced his first wife, Phasaelis, to marry his half-brother's wife, Herodias. And a man named John the Baptist, who was a messenger of God, publicly denounced this relationship, which made Herodias very angry. So then what does Herod do? Um, I'm trying to get to the next slide, sorry says, when Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, heard about Jesus, he said to his advisors, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. That is why he can do such miracles. For Herod had arrested and imprisoned John as a favor to his wife Herodias, the former wife of Herod's brother Philip. And John had been telling Herod, it's against God's law for you to marry her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of a riot because of all the people John, who believed that John was a prophet. But at a birthday party for Herod, Herodias' daughter this is his stepdaughter, performed a dance that greatly pleased him. So he promised with a vow to give her anything she wanted. And at her mother's urging, the girl said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a tray. Then the king regretted what he had said, but because of the vow he had made in front of his guests, he issued the necessary orders. So John was beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a tray and given to the girl who took it to her mother. Later, John's disciples came for his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus what had happened. What influenced Herod's decisions? 
I'm sorry the text is so short, uh, to, so small. It looks better on my screen. But what influenced his decisions? If you look, it says things like he was trying to please his wife. He wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people. His stepdaughter's dance pleased him, and so he makes, he makes this impulsive vow to give her anything she wants. And of course, Herodias asks for, uh, based on her mom's um, you know, manipulation. And then Herod doesn't actually want to give her this request, but because of those who sat around him. Because he didn't want to lose face. Right? Because he had done this publicly, he decides to continue with the order to kill John the Baptist. What influenced his decisions? It didn't come from any of his own convictions of what he believes should be right or wrong or what he even wanted. It was all based on what would please others or what he was afraid of what people might do or say. Here's another example. Over 2,000 years before Jesus, there was another um, leader named Moses, and he led this group of people called the Hebrews out of slavery in Egypt. And they are now traveling through the desert on their way to, to um, a new land to create a new nation. And as they're traveling through, the nations around them are getting scared because they've heard the alarming stories of how uh, God had delivered them out of Egypt and all the plagues and, and all these miracles. And so they're afraid. And so there's a king named Balak who devises a plan. And he sends messengers to a man named Balaam, son of Bor, who's living in his native land. And his message said, look, a vast horde of people has arrived from Egypt. They cover the face of the earth and they're threatening me. Please come and curse these people for me because they're too powerful for me. Then perhaps I'll be able to conquer them and drive them from the land because I know that blessings fall on any people you bless and curses fall on people you curse. In other words, he says, Balaam, you are someone who's in touch with the supernatural. Anyone you bless is blessed. Anyone you curse is cursed. So curse these people for me so that when I go and fight against them, they'll lose. Balak's messengers were elders of Moab Median, sent out with money to pay Balaam to place a curse upon Israel. They went to Balaam and delivered Balak's message to him. Stay here overnight, Balaam said. In the morning, I'll tell you whatever the Lord directs me to say. So the officials from Moab stayed there with Balaam. See, first of all, when Balaam, a man of God, gets a request saying, we'll pay you money if you curse God's people. First of all, he doesn't even need to ask God what God thinks. It should have been pretty clear. But notice how Balaam says, stay here. I'll ask God what he wants me to do. God is very clear. God says, do not go with them. And in fact, it's interesting when you read the text, Balaam actually doesn't ask God. God comes to him and says, hey, Balaam, who you've got staying with you? And Balaam is like, oh, these, these people, all oh, they're messengers. And God says, hey, don't go with them. You are not to curse these people for they have been blessed. Pretty clear, right? Next morning, Balaam gets up and he tells the officials, go home. The Lord will not let me go with you. So the Moabite officials go back to King Balak and say, Balaam refused to come with us. So then Balak tried again. This time he sent a larger number of even more distinguished officials than those he sent the first time. They went to Balaam and delivered this message to him. This is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Please don't let anything stop you from coming to help me. I will pay you very well to do whatever you tell me. Just come and curse these people for me. 
But Balaam responded to Balak's messengers, Even if Balak were to give me his palace filled with silver and gold, I will be powerless to do anything against the will of God. But stay here one more night, and I will see what the Lord has to say to me. Okay? You see, there's this battle going on in Balaam's heart. He knows that God does not want him to curse Israel. He's made that pretty clear. But he wants the money. He wants the political connections. He wants the social benefits. He wants the prestige and the fame, right? He wants all these things. And so he keeps clinging on and hoping that God will change his mind. I encourage you to read the rest of the story. We don't have time to go over it now, but it's a very fascinating story. It doesn't end well for anyone. You see, money, fame, success, pride, pleasing people. These are all the motivations that a lot of times go into decision-making, even for us. And then there's also our feelings, whether it's anger, lust, jealousy, grief. Our feelings are powerful factors in the choices that we make. And feelings are not wrong. They're there to help us. But they're not always the best barometers for right and wrong. My least favorite book, in the Bible is the book of Judges because it chronicles a time in history when people did not acknowledge God as their king and they didn't have an actual king to guide them. And in the 21 chapters, there's just one horrible story after another of murder, conspiracy, war, clerical abuse, rape. It's just a horrible book in terms of uh, how it, it's like turning on the news today and watching all the bad bits right? all around the world. It just depresses you um, and it just makes you wonder what is wrong with humanity, right? And that's the point of this book. It's to show you what happens when people do what is right in their own eyes. The whole book of Judges, I love how the Bible is real. It doesn't just tell us the good stuff. It tells us the real truth. And it, in the whole book of Judges, it's horrible story after another. There's this refrain four times in the book of Judges. The author says, now in those days, Israel had no king. And in two of those times, it says all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And this book is a reminder for us of what happens when everyone does things according to what they think is right in their own eyes and not according to what God says is right. The, pointing, the turning point of the book is actually Right in the, in the climax of the book, the story of Samson. You might have heard of Samson. He was a strong guy, but he was led by his feelings, right? He was angry. He killed people. He was jealous. He killed people. He was, you know, he, he lusted after. He killed people. Like there, there was always this, he just did whatever he wanted based on his feelings. And the climax of that story is when he lets Delilah, you know, seduce him, etc his hair gets cut off and the Philistines who've paid Delilah, they gouge out his eyes. So it's, it's a climax of the story where not only are his eyes literally gouged out, but it's a symbolic moment where everyone does according to what is right in their own eyes. And they're literally blind. They're literally blind. When we follow our own inclinations and preferences and our own understand, understanding of morality, we end up blind. We're blind leading the blind. It's a tragic result for everyone. If you read the book of Judges, you'll see what happens. And we can see that in the news today. 
all the horrible things that go on are a result of all of us doing what we think is right in our own eyes. There's another proverb that says, there's a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. See, that's a temptation that we all experience. To follow our own understanding, our own inclination, our own expectations, our own calculations. Jesus once told a story. He said, Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. And he told them, a, he told them this story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. And he said to himself, What should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. Then I'll have room to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. You see, this, this rich man he, he thought to himself, and it makes sense, right? Not enough space, build a bigger barn, right? Store more for myself. If I make more, more profit for me. But what does God say? He says, you have enough, you have more than enough, give to the poor. Instead of building a bigger barn, he should have kept the barn he had and donated the rest. What motivates us when making decisions? As we saw in the research that was shared in the beginning, anything from hunger to fresh air to plain laziness impacts our decision-making. We're human beings with flaws and sinful tendencies and miscalculated um, math, right? Our calculations are based on what we value, what we think are important. But what's truly important? What really has eternal value? God speaks to all of us. He says in Isaiah chapter 55, this is one of my favorite passages, seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him now while he is near. Let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God for he will forgive generously. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The rain and the snow come down from the heavens, then stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed to the farmer and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word. I send it out and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to and it will prosper everywhere that I send it. You will live in peace and joy. The joy and joy and peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Where once where there were thorns, cypress trees will grow. Where nettles grew, myrtles will sprout up. These events will bring great honor to the Lord's name. They will be an everlasting sign of his power and love. God says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. He says, I understand far better than you what is eternal, what is valuable, what will truly bring you joy and peace. So he says, look to me. Look at my word. Listen to my spirit. And let that be the standard by which we make our decisions. Decisions like loving our neighbors as ourselves. 
forgiving our enemies, giving to the poor, honoring God above all else, serving one another. These are the factors that God wants to shape and guide our decisions. Do my choices honor God? Does it treat this person the way I want to be treated? Is this a good idea in my eyes, or is it a good idea in God's eyes? This week, we've been trying to teach the boys how to resist peer pressure and how to make good decisions. So things like not eating honey is a real scenario that happened. One time, I remember it was very quiet. When, and it's quiet, they're like, what's happening? And uh, I, I went downstairs, and we've got this little toy tent. And the boys literally had their hands in the honey jar. And they were just eating honey. And so... Um, they know now not to do that, but in general, <laughs> the pure pressure is real, right? And so we've been trying to role play with them um, how to resist peer pressure. And so this is a video we did it with Joshua and Micah. This is just a video of, of Joshua resisting, teaching him how to resist peer pressure. So, Ben, if you could play that for us. Joshua, yeah. I found a jar of honey. Let's go eat honey together. Yeah. No, you're to say, no, that's a bad idea. No, that's. Okay, you can't okay. have this, okay, little brother? Okay, I'm Joshua. pretending I'm the dad. I'm pretending. Joshua. <laughs> Joshua, I found ice cream. Let's go eat ice cream together in the tent. No, that's my daddy. Oh, high five! <laughs> you know our natural inclination? Our natural inclination is yes! Give me the ice cream, right? Give me the honey. Give me the sinful stuff. Give me the, you know... Our natural inclination is to say yes. And the reason why we study the Bible, the reason why we gather together as a church, the reason why we pray and seek the Holy Spirit is so that we can practice and learn how to say no. To learn what is a good idea, what is a bad idea. So that not only can we make better decisions for ourselves, but so that we can help each other make better choices, that as a community, as a society, as a, as a world, that we can make a place where people can truly live in freedom, where people can really experience God. So I want to challenge you today to practice, to learn, to go back to the Word of God as the standard for which we make our decisions, to pray and seek God's Holy Spirit in giving us that voice that tells us which way to go so that we can make better choices and so that we can know that our choices are leading us to life and joy and peace. This is my prayer for all of us this morning. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for being the light that gives us guidance in the darkness to help us make better choices. And Father, in those crucial decisions of our lives that impact um, the course of our lives, Father, and even the small ones that we might not even realize um, will have a bigger impact, give us your guidance. Help us to turn back to your word, to seek your will that's already been revealed and help us to fight the good fight when there is that battle in our hearts between what we know is right and what we want and help us to make better choices, not just for our own selves, but Father, to make a better world, a world that is um, right now so full of conflict and pain. Help us to make it a place of healing and peace. And Father, make us instruments of your love so that as we make choices that honor you, that your name will be glorified and that people will come to know you. 
This is our prayer in your son's name. Amen.